Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I have to weep for them, because I remain so impotent and alone. Out of my whole life, I am left with scarcely five persons alive, whom I can claim some trace of friendship. Johann Valentin Andrea, citizen of Brandenburg during the Thirty Years' War, July 7th, Consequences for the Swedish state. Almost immediately, the Swedish stock began to fall. Swedish forces retreated towards Pomerania, abandoning practically all of their previous winnings. The initiative passed security to the Habsburgs in Germany, while the prospects for the future success of the Protestant cause, or in fact the defeat of the Habsburg cause, depended largely on the plans of France, which we'll examine later. The Heilbronn League, so carefully and ingeniously incepted by Gustavus Adolphus himself in the months before his death, received its death blow on that battlefield also, as Sweden proved no longer able to support it, and the German princes and reps within it came face to face with the monumental decision of either abandoning the League and siding with Ferdinand, following all they had done with the enemy, or remaining with the now harried and outcast Swedes. The latter choice would mean rejecting the offer Ferdinand had made to all of the HRE's princes following the Peace of Prague. Clemency, in exchange for their cooperation in ridding the Holy Roman Empire of foreigners, be they Swede, or French, or Dutch. The Peace of Prague, signed by the major electors of the HRE in Prague Castle, Bohemia, on the 30th of May 1635, contained provisions to please practically every signee. The Saxons, who Ferdinand's practical advisers considered so essential in winning back over the Protestant side, were promised the annexation of Lusatia into their territory that they had already been occupying since 1620. 
Magdeburg was also granted to John George, as well as Saxon forces Pride of Place in a soon-to-be-created Imperial Army under the command of Ferdinand II's son, soon-to-be-Ferdinand III, Holy Roman Emperor. Brandenburg was granted the rights to inherit Pomerania once Boguslav died, though the Swedes still inhabited it desperately. Recognition of George William of Brandenburg's rights here would have done much to win him back over to Ferdinand at this stage. If you remember from last time, Pomerania was pretty much the biggest sore spot the Brandenburg elector had with Sweden, since Sweden had treated Brandenburg as its base of operations, following its invasion of the HRE in mid-1630. Ferdinand's acceptance of George William's claims would have vindicated those in the Brandenburg court, who had previously supposed that only through Habsburg intervention could Pomerania be guaranteed for Brandenburg. Bavaria also gained in the form of the lands of the Palatinate in perpetuity, whereas before the issue of who would inherit what with regards to the Palatinate had been a source of conflict. Crucially for the Protestant side, whom Ferdinand was now being advised desperately to make amends with, the Edict of Restitution, that troublesome document which had evoked such passionate opposition from Saxony and Brandenburg, and which Ferdinand himself claimed credit for and refused to amend, was finally suspended for a period of 40 years. Just as he had tried to roll back the clock to the 1555 Peace of Augsburg within that edict, part of the terms of the Peace of Prague upheld that the clock would be rolled back to 1627, before the major confiscations of Protestant property and secularised lands had taken place, but at a point just good enough for the Catholic position for that side to be content to. It was a remarkable stroke for Ferdinand and in terms of how much it now unified the various denominational elements within the empire so completely for the first time, it is massively significant. Some historians even point to the Peace of Prague as the moment when German nationalism, or the idea that the defence of the German fatherland must be undertaken, was born. In any case, Geoffrey Parker in his book, The Thirty Years' War, notes its political significance as well, and what it meant for the once radically Catholic elements of the Habsburg court that once held the Emperor Ferdinand II's ear. Quote, the Peace of Prague marked a significant turning point in the Thirty Years' War. On the one hand, it brought about a notable scaling down in the religious aspect of the struggle. No longer were Protestants ranged against Catholics in almost monolithic blocks. No longer did the ultra-Catholics monopolise imperial policy. The rejection of the advice so explicitly and tenaciously proffered by Lamaromani was, in this context, of critical importance. The formation of imperial policy was now in the hands of pragmatists, such as Trotzmandorf, director of Imperial Privy Council from 1637, who realised that sacrifices would be required if the gains of the 1620s were to be recovered. Podcast footnote. One of these names should be a tad familiar to you, and both are at least memorable for the length of time it takes to say them. The first name, Lamaromani, was Ferdinand's court preacher and Jesuit advisor. Historians like to point to Ferdinand as being sort of under his spell. Trotmansdorf was pretty much in the background of Ferdinand's dealings in the years before. Having dealt with Wallenstein diplomatically on many occasions, he is soon to play a more prominent role, and will certainly be hearing more of him. End podcast footnote. Yet, the making of the peace with the German Lutherans was not only a triumph for the pragmatists, it was also a vindication 
of the policies of the Spanish minister, Olivares, who had, for over a decade, urged the emperor to make an agreement with his domestic foes in order to destroy his remaining enemies and deploy his resources against the Dutch and, if necessary, France. End quote. If it seems as though this all worked out very well for Ferdinand quite fast, and that turning his former enemies into friends was really quite easy, then you're quite right. What is clear from the years before is that Ferdinand's own actions, be they the edict or his own inability to negotiate with tact, pushed Saxony and Brandenburg, the two main states that the Peace of Prague was aimed at, into Sweden's arms. It was not, if you recall, the desire of either elector to go squarely against their emperor, the eternally cautious and constitutionally minded John George of Saxony would never have joined the Swedes had Commander Tilly, acting under Ferdinand's authority if not his orders, occupied his lands and capital with his army in spring 1631. Likewise, George William would certainly have hesitated far more had Tilly not also ravaged his uncle's city, Magdeburg, with such ferocity. Both electors felt they had been pushed into the position of opposition by Ferdinand's actions the Edict of Restitution, coming as a result of non-stop Habsburg victories and seen by Ferdi as his virtual gift to the Jesuits, the Capuchins and the Papacy, was also a considerable motivator towards opposition when it became apparent that Ferdinand refused to compromise. But that was before Gustavus Adolphus had come to play, and it was before Sweden had come out of nowhere and upset Ferdinand's precariously balanced apple cart. I found it interesting that it took just one great Swedish victory, Breitenfeld, in September 1631, to turn North German princes so completely against Ferdinand, and then it took just one Habsburg victory, Nordlingen, to turn them back. It seemed as though the German princes were merely waiting opportunistically for the best deal to come down to them, where they could then collectively throw their weight behind to pressure either side. But it was more than that. By finally compromising and listening to his political rather than his religious advisers, as well as, incidentally, his son, Ferdinand was able to provide the carrot that the Protestant German princes across the board could use. Widespread concessions, promises of amnesty, and commitments on the part of the princes not to conduct their own foreign policy were some of the final terms hammered out on May the 30th, 1635. However, these terms would never have been possible had Gustavus Adolphus and his allies not reminded Ferdinand just how precarious his position as Holy Roman Emperor was, and how if he did not act with the Empire rather than the Habsburg family in mind, the tides of war could shift against the Habsburgs with just as much ferocity as they had seemingly flowed for them until Sweden entered the dance. That's why I'd like to present the Peace of Prague as something of a learning process for Ferdinand, rather than a simple back-and-forth exercise of meaningless loyalties exchanged by the other German princes as it suited them. The Holy Roman Empire only worked with compromise. This was a lesson all of Ferdinand's predecessors knew so well, be they Matthias or Rudolf before him. It was striking, but certainly indicative of his character, that Ferdinand only learned how to compromise two years before his death, when little options remained open to him, and when his allies, Poles and Spanish and Italian alike, increased their vocal support for a settlement that would solve, once and for all, the inherent issues of the Holy Roman Empire. From now on, when we talk about imperial armies, unless I state otherwise, we'll be talking about armies made up of Germans from Bavaria, Saxony, Brandenburg, etc. 
that in itself is significant. It had taken almost 18 years of war to forge it, but now it finally looked like Ferdinand could call upon the Empire, and not just his family and bribed allies, to fight the Thirty Years' War. And just in time, too, because the chain reaction caused by the Peace of Prague appeared initially to mark the end of the religious or German conflict, and the beginning of the European and even worldwide war. Ferdinand II wanted wholeheartedly to solve the issue of German friction before France became an issue for the HRE. And the Peace of Prague was also meant to facilitate this, on top of everything else that it did. From a different perspective, I have got a new source in. Ronald Ash, in his book, The Thirty Years' War, The Holy Roman Empire and Europe, 1618-1648, notes on the intertwining nature of the Prague negotiations, and why they kept Ferdinand and his allies awake at night. Quote, Ferdinand II was equally interested in ending the war in Germany. In late 1634, tensions between France and Spain were growing. Madrid was eager to win the Emperor's support for the all-out war against France, which seemed so inevitable. However, Ferdinand could only support his Spanish cousins effectively if he managed to put an end to the conflict in the Empire. In fact, Spanish diplomats actively tried to promote the cause of peace in the Empire during the years 1634-1635. to They commissioned pamphlets, which appealed to the national sentiment in Germany and tried to mobilise the sentiment against France. The notion of a German nation, which had to defend its honour and greatness against its enemies, already ever mentioned before 1630 by Spanish authors, assumed a prominent place in Spanish official documents and political tracts in the early 1630s, whereas Richelieu and his pamphleteers appealed more to the ideas of German liberty, threatened by Habsburg absolutism. End quote. Ronald's view of the diplomacy here is certainly interesting when we look at the angling of both sides. As usual, Richelieu's France is attempting to maintain problems for the Habsburgs so as to keep them occupied and weak, and expects to intervene in a war by proxy where possible. However, in an unusual act for the Spanish, such was their desperation for a peace settlement that they appeared even willing to act against Ferdinand, to the extent that they would not support him if he tried to impose yet another victor's peace on Protestant Germans. The Spanish, of course, were doing this for selfish reasons. They wanted the resources of the HRE turned as a united body against their enemies, not fighting amongst itself. But it is still fascinating to note that for Spain the solution, compromise, appeared so simple, and indeed it was straightforward enough. It was Ferdinand himself who was expected to be the major stumbling block. However, the Spanish were surely pleasantly surprised when they again attempted to persuade Ferdinand towards peace in late 1634, as the preliminaries of Perna, essentially the prequel to the Peace of Prague, was ongoing. Indeed, it appeared to the Spanish that Ferdinand was finally listening to the opinions of the pragmatists, and perhaps it helped that this group now included his son. Still though, even if the battle for Ferdinand was won, the war for convincing the other German princes was not necessarily a foregone conclusion in late 1634, early 1635. Especially when this was coupled with the idea of Spain as an ally, which it became clear was part of Spain's manifesto. As Ronald Ash explains, quote, 
Though few German princes and statesmen were convinced that an alliance with Spain was the best way to promote Germany's greatness, the beloved German fatherland was indeed referred to frequently enough in German pamphlets and tracts in the mid-1630s. The disasters of the previous years and the presence of foreign armies on German soil had certainly sharpened the sense of national identity in Germany. Nevertheless, the gap between patriotic rhetoric and practical politics remained enormous, as most princes were extremely reluctant to sacrifice their own interests to the common good, however defined, which the pamphleteers so often invoked. End quote. The scepticism of the German princes is of course to be expected, since Ferdinand was expecting them to abandon the policies they had held in the previous years of relative, nominal independence, and commit to an empire led solely by him. The promise of concessions we examined earlier made the idea tastier to the key German figures, but I think it's important to take from Ronald's extract here that we shouldn't think of the Peace of Prague as a simple transition from religious to non-religious. Germany had ripped itself apart for the past 15 plus years, and it would be impossible for any man to brush that under the rug and attempt to move on, unless some serious talking and negotiations took place. We must remember as well how much trust everyone had to place in Ferdinand, and how much each individual prince would suffer. Saxony, for example, as the veteran Saxon commander Arnhem had warned its elector John George, would not simply cease to be at war once the Prague Agreements had been signed. Instead, Arnhem lamented, Saxony would be trading one enemy for another. Though at peace with Ferdinand, Saxony would now have to declare war on Sweden. Speaking of Sweden, though the Heilbronn League had been established to counterbalance Ferdinand's influences with the German princes and provide a sense of longevity where the Swedish influence in the empire was concerned, the pace at which it disintegrated is breathtaking. Additionally, and perhaps because the terms of the Peace of Prague were so much more attractive than what the Swedes were offering, and because the Swedes were in headlong retreat through hostile territory into Pomerania, the Heilbronn League and its now terrified members saw no alternative but to appeal to France. This, though apparently hugely significant, was not the moment that the French Premier Cardinal Richelieu and his King Louis XIII made the decision to wage war against Spain. This decision was in fact made many months earlier. For years, Cardinal Richelieu had conducted French foreign policy with a level of finesse necessary to ensure France's continued place in the background of the Habsburg consciousness. France's war by diversion on Richelieu's foreign policy, and with King Louis in full support, had proved a consistent thorn in the Habsburg side. 1625 saw a shaky agreement between Dutch, English, Danish and French agents to conduct a war funded on Anglo-French money. And from that point on it only escalated. When the Dutch appeared to be facing their darkest hour, French money was forthcoming. And when the Dutch began to take the fight to the Spanish at the close of the 1620s, French subsidies only increased. The monetary assistance towards the Netherlands and Sweden began to make the arrangement appear more and more like an informal alliance rather than a financial support base. 
as Richelieu lent his political support to both internationally as well. Whenever the opportunity manifested itself to hurt the Habsburgs, Richelieu's influences were clearly visible. Be they in the less well-known efforts to entice Russia into the war against Poland, or in the more infamous French directives against Mantua in northern Italy. What had been at least consistent about Richelieu's foreign policy was that he always stopped short of declaring actual war. This was because France was believed by Richelieu to not yet be ready for such a war. The French king, Louis XIII, was extremely hesitant about committing his country to the war that was being experienced across the continent. One thing was certain, if Richelieu wished to commit to that kind of struggle, he needed to set some insurance policies in motion first, starting domestically. As we saw in previous episodes, France suffered no end of troubles, be they in the form of domestic threats from the Huguenots, defeated at the siege of La Rochelle in 1628, or from the king's mother when she tried to arrest Richelieu and redirect French foreign policy towards reconciliation with Spain. Richelieu's success in emerging from these events stronger than before ensured he had the close confidence of the king, and that he could thus begin his virtual monopoly over French foreign policy in mid-1630 that was to endure for the last 12 years of his life. However, domestic considerations were the least of France's troubles. Louis himself was especially concerned at the ability of the French army to effectively defend the huge French frontier, where at every strategic point Spanish garrisons or influences resided. And this explains the hesitation Richelieu encountered, not just within his sovereign, but within himself, in making the steps towards the war which he had always known would one day be necessary. Geoffrey Parker echoes this view of the French security problem, how it was solved, and why it made fighting the war covertly, and by proxy, that much more attractive in the early 1630s than open warfare with the Habsburgs. Quote, Among the other strategic considerations was the vulnerability of the French frontier to invasion, and the proximity of two Habsburg client states, Savoy and Lorraine, whose dukes had on occasion given refuge to, or otherwise assisted, aristocratic critics of the French government. Louis XIII and Richelieu decided first to strike at Charles Emmanuel of Savoy. With the connivance of the papacy, the French army invaded Savoy twice in 1629-1630, and retained first the fortress of Susa, and then the more considerable one of Pernarolo. In 1635, Savoy was one of the few states to join a French-inspired league, against Habsburg power in Italy. End quote. The other issue with Lorraine was more complex, and you may have heard about Lorraine by way of passing reference on my part in the past. It was obviously not beneficial to have Spanish forces occupying this strategic point, which is located on the eastern border of France, a little bit south of Luxembourg. Together with Alsace, it was to be a serious area of contention for the Franco-German statesman, those of you may recognise it as the region which flip-flopped between German ownership after the 1870 Franco-Prussian War, to French ownership following World War I, to German again following the initial German victories of World War II, and then back to France, where it remains following the end of the Third Reich. At this stage, it may surprise you to know it was essentially a Spanish vassal state, conveniently nestled in such a place that it ensured the maintenance of the Spanish road. Remember that vital Habsburg artery, that enabled Spain to supply itself from Italy to the South Netherlands. Its presence in the Habsburg camp was a serious worry to Richelieu, as he viewed the area as a virtual Spanish garrison region. 
This did not prevent him from seizing the opportunity, though, and taking chunks of it for France, while the Swedish storm obliterated Ferdinand's dreams. In December 1631, Richelieu was able to demand the withdrawal of imperial troops from the reign, which was refused, and French invasions, three in total, followed. Each time, Charles IV of Lorraine promised to uphold French interests, and each time he went back on his word. Finally, in 1634, Louis permitted a final invasion of Lorraine, and was able to ensure that resistance to the French regime collapsed thereafter. Thus, Savoy and Lorraine were now neutralised as threats to France, and could no longer be considered as allies to Spain. So it seemed as though France was militarily secure, insofar as she would not have to worry about every Spanish satellite. But the Spanish Netherlands still posed a logistical problem, as did the Pyrenees and North Italy. The problem which will soon become obvious was that France, having sat on the sidelines for so long, and having had much time to ferment her own plans in the event of military actions, created for itself goals which were too ambitious from the outset, and by attempting to move on so many fronts, Richelieu nearly bore witness to the collapse of France, brought on by her own military miscalculations, which were enormous in the extreme. David Milland, in his book Europe at War, 1600-1650, notes that France had numerous problems, financial, security-related and domestic, in relation to the unreliability of her nobles during battles. Milland also notes the other startling shortcoming of the burgeoning French war effort, their serious lack of qualified, experienced military commanders. Milland thus concludes a damning judgement on Richelieu, which, if we follow the course of events, is kind of hard to argue against. Quote, in the circumstances, therefore, Richelieu's plans for making war in 1635 seem to have been prepared with bland indifference to his inadequate reserves of men, commanders and money, since he undertook to harass Spain and North Italy, to strengthen the defence of Alsace and to assist the Dutch against the Cardinal Infant. End quote. The declaration of war was made against Spain only on the 19th of May 1635, occurring simultaneously to the various German delegations that negotiated their terms for the Peace of Prague. Spain could have lamented that France was simply using the imprisonment of the Elector of Trier as a pretext, and that Richelieu had planned all along to make war anyway, and in a sense that was correct. But as we've seen, neither Spain nor France could be accused of acting innocently, and both had in fact set aside plans for the event of war. On the 4th of August 1634, before Nordingen had shattered the Protestant cause, King Louis had sent Richelieu a secret memo, arguing for a vigorous open war against Spain in order to secure a beneficial general peace. Geoffrey Parker enlightens us. Quote, for his part, Louis XIII was genuinely convinced that the Spaniards intended to invade France whenever it suited them. And he too was right. The Spanish Council of State had discussed on the 13th of April 1634 whether or not to declare war on France, and although they had decided against it, an alliance was signed a month later with Gaston of Orléans, the French heir presumptive who was in exile in the Spanish Netherlands. In such a tense situation, there were strong arguments in favour of a preemptive French strike, making the Habsburg territories the field of battle, rather than fight a defensive war in the bowels of France. End quote. In December 1631, King Louis had promised aid to any Catholic ruler who requested it, against either Spanish or Swedish troops. 
Only Trier took his offer seriously. The cologne appeared to show interest until eventually peeling back off into the Habsburg camp. The fact that French diplomacy had effectively detached an imperial elector was in itself significant, but it was mainly due to said elector's fear at being occupied by the Swedes. Because Gustavus was on a tear rampaging through the Rhineland, he feared that he would be next, so his lands were placed under French protection, and in April 1632 Gustavus in fact granted French rights to the territory and allowed French occupation of its key forts. But Trier was merely a practising ground for Louis to exert French protection on its neighbours. Trier itself would be returned to the HRE following the war. In the case of Alsace though, it was a bit more complicated. Although the territorial rulers there had come under French rule because of a treaty signed with the Swedes, and although this treaty was only meant to last the duration of the war too, Richelieu immediately set about fortifying the region and increasing French influence there. Before Nordlingen, France only felt it needed enough security in Alsace to guarantee access to the Rhine. But afterwards, she needed the power granted by Alsace to keep the Habsburgs beyond the east bank of that river. Richelieu thus transformed the rights he had gained over Alsace into full French lordship over the region by 1636. All these moves were seen as reinforcing the French border against Spanish attack. The reps of the Heilbronn League, who had ventured to Paris in November 1634 to beg for Richelieu's aid, were to be sorely disappointed when Richelieu could not offer them the declaration of war against Ferdinand II that they wanted. Swedish reps were present in Paris too, and they can't have been very happy to see the Heilbronn League apparently turning in desperation to France, but they had their own demands to make. Suddenly, Richelieu was inundated with calls to move against the HRE, but he proved a hard bargainer and seemed willing to fulfil the Swedish desires only if Sweden made some pretty big sacrifices on her part. Sweden had to surrender the French subsidy and hand control of the war effort to France, in return for a vague agreement which promised French assistance if Sweden was attacked. Geoffrey Parker explains what happened next. Quote, Not surprisingly, Oxenstierna refused to ratify the agreement, and Richelieu was instructed to withhold French support until he did when even Sweden's special envoy, Hugo Grotius, failed to obtain concessions from the French, Oxenstierna was forced to visit Louis and his chief minister in person in the spring of 1635. Richelieu found the Swedish Chancellor, a bit gothic and very wily, and the upshot was the Treaty of Compiègne on the 28th of April, 1635, by which both parties undertook to assist the Protestant party in Germany by force of arms, with neither concluding a separate peace or armistice. Yet, the size of the French army and subsidy alike was left unspecified, and it remained so until the Treaty of Wismar in March 1636. It would certainly have been something to behold, with Oxenstierna and Richelieu in the same room negotiating together. Here were two of Europe's most important statesmen. The fact that they were on the same page, at least to a reasonable degree, was in itself significant and of course deeply concerning for their enemies. Richelieu had for the moment restricted France to a merely Spanish war, he claimed, because Spain was the source of Ferdinand's power, and by breaking Spain, the Austrian Habsburgs would soon follow. However accurate this portrayal of events may have been, Richelieu surely knew that the main reason for keeping it Spanish was to limit French expenses in men and materials, and see if the war could in fact be won against Spain, 
whether it was feasible to continue it, how Spain would react, how France's allies would react, etc. Just as Spain wished to bring Ferdinand to bear against France, the Dutch wanted to bring France against Spain, and moving in Spain would surely have facilitated this and greatly pleased their Dutch ally. Though Sweden was certainly miffed that Richelieu held back from a full-scale declaration of war against the Habsburgs across Europe, it seemed as though it was only a matter of time before this declaration was handed down. This Across Europe declaration was expected to also include Poland at some stage too, since Axel Oxenstierna, Sweden's first minister, was beginning to become concerned that that theatre may heat up yet again. Indeed, Axox had good reason to fear this. Vladislav, the Polish king, had defeated the attempts of the Russians and Turks to strip portions of his state away from him. In so doing, he had frustrated the original plans of Gustavus and Tsar Michael that had been developed as early as 1630, and which had enabled Gustavus to invade the HRE, believing that his Polish flank was secure thanks to Russian promises to invade Poland and distract the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. When the Russian invasion that we examined last time failed outside of Smolensk, that pretty much ended any hopes of squeezing Poland between a Russo-Swedish alliance, and also meant for Axe Ox that, while he tried his utmost to conduct the German war, he now had to worry about Poland reawakening a conflict that had lasted almost 30 years before. The truce of Altmark, that had ended the on-off Polish war beforehand, was due to expire in 1635. Axe Ox knew he'd have to renew it before it did, or Sweden's position would be even more desperate than it was at this stage. With the loss at Nordlingen, the Swedish council was becoming supremely defeatist, and was now advocating a return to home affairs, a securing of peace at any price with the emperor, even if that meant the end of their ambitions for Pomerania, although Swedish statesmen did debate bitterly about this issue, and primarily a refocus on their dangerous neighbours, Denmark or Poland, who may seek to exploit Sweden's exhaustion. Geoffrey Parker paints a grim picture of the Swedish situation at this time. Quote, After the Peace of Prague, Sweden's position appeared desperate. By the end of 1635, almost all her former German allies had accepted it, and her military resources in Germany had dwindled to Banner's small army in Pomerania. She was now confronted with a resurgence of German patriotism under the Emperor's leadership, with a universal desire for peace, with a fierce hatred of the foreigner, a situation more menacing by far than that of 1629. It was no wonder that the regents were ready to pay for what Oxenstierna bitterly condemned as a disastrous price for the renewal of the truce with Poland at Stumsdorf on the 20th of September 1635. Disastrous indeed. Vladislav's Poland was not impressed with Sweden's interference in their affairs over the previous years of the truce which had culminated during the Russian and Turkish declarations of war. In the event, it took Richelieu to pressure the Polish government, many of whom, despite their anger, still harboured severe reservations about plunging their state back into the cycle of Swedish wars again. Even with French reps at the signing, though, and beforehand in the deliberations, Sweden still to cough up a considerable amount. Oxenstierna recognised this, and would surely have lamented bitterly that it was the Polish war, not the German one, which should have Sweden's full attention, and yet, because of the German war, Poland was able to win diplomatically against its great rival. He noted, quote, 
Polish war is our war. Win or lose, it is our gain or loss. The German war, I don't know what it is. Only yet we pour our blood here for the sake of reputation, and we have naught but ingratitude to expect. We must let this German business be left to the Germans, who will be the only people to get any good out of it, if there is any. And therefore, not spend any more men or money here, but rather try by all means to wriggle out of it. End quote. Such a starkly honest comment is a good indication of how Axel really felt about the German theatre, or any theatre for that matter, which distracted Sweden from Poland. Remember also Axox's opposition against allying with Russia on the grounds that it would drag Sweden in too many directions. As per the terms of Stumsdorf, Sweden lost the Prussian ports, whose tolls brought Sweden its greatest source of income from abroad. In return for this giant concession, Sweden got to keep Livonia, and now at least no longer had to garrison troops in that southeast corner of the Baltic. Now, of course, in a Sweden bereft of French money and port tolls, this was the worst possible time to live off the land, especially since the Swedish slice of Pomerania now faced imperial threats on practically all sides. Thus, a whole truckload rested on the Swedish veteran commander Johan Banner, and what he could pull out of his hat while he nestled his troops precariously between various enemies in the Pomeranian bridgehead. Banner will seemingly do the impossible in 1636, and we'll examine that in a bit, but for now we should look at the other ally in this trio, the Dutch, and see what exactly the crack is with them. For Frederick Henry of the Dutch Republic, the Swedish conquests had proved a boon for his fortunes. He was able to further pressure the Spanish Netherlands, almost fermenting total rebellion there in 1632. But after Gustavus's death and the subsequent rolling back of the Swedish victories, the Spanish routes opened up again and reinforcements were able to get through. The Cardinal Ivan Ferdinand, brother of the Spanish king Philip IV, was heading to the obedient provinces with an army fresh from its victory at Nordlingen, and it arrived in late 1634. This arrival greatly inspired the inhabitants there, who saw that Spain had not in fact abandoned them to their rebellious Dutch neighbours, and Frederick Henry soon saw a more active Spanish military response. This was in time for the French contingent to arrive, which it did after forcing its way through Luxembourg in early 1635. The idea was for the Dutch to link up with their newly active French allies and surround the Spanish administration in Brussels together along with eventual plans, ambitious ones, for the partition of the Spanish Netherlands between the two allies. But such plans were an example of the incredibly unrealistic ambitions Richelieu harboured for the beginnings of the French campaign. France was also trying to reinforce Alsace-Dorraine, so as to prevent Spanish forces passing through the Rhine frontier at the same time, while it was of course also trying to defend its border along the south with Spain from attack. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. In that direction. In the Netherlands, the French army became invested with disease after some initial successes, and couldn't link up with the Dutch ally after all. Frederick Henry had been hesitant to coordinate his moves with the French link up, since he was sceptical from the outset of the likelihood of success. Such cynicism was the result of years of protracted warfare in the region. But the French, full of confidence and new to the game, harboured no such reservations, and couldn't understand why their Dutch ally apparently hesitated to support them when a joint victory was to their benefit. The French went from slagging their Dutch ally to asking for their help, as Dutch boats were mobilised to bring the French army home, because Luxembourg, now blocked by an imperial army led by Piccolomini, one of Wallenstein's old lieutenants, could no longer be used as a route of retreat. The news that the Austrian Habsburgs were sending an army towards them then increased even further the morale of the embattled Spanish Netherlands populace. David Milland covers these events and the military exercises that followed. Quote, Since there was no returning through Luxembourg, the remnant French army had to be shipped home in great humiliation by the Dutch. Their departure was celebrated in Brussels where morale had been raised not only by the triumphant arrival in the previous year of the Cardinal Infant Ferdinand, but also by his tactful demeanour as Philip IV's representative. In addition, the citizens of the obedient provinces derived much satisfaction from the presence of Piccolomini's army, incontrovertible evidence of imperial support for their cause. With Piccolomini, the Infant then seized Schenkenchans, at the junction of the Val and the Rhine. This was a particularly bold and imaginative achievement, because Schenkenchans was a key point of the lines of defence created by Maurice of Nassau in 1605, and Maastricht was now all but cut off from the United Provinces. End quote. The French thrust into the Spanish Netherlands was meant to be one aspect of a French multi-strike against the Spanish administration across Europe and included aforementioned manoeuvres in Alsace and along the Pyrenees border with Spain, as well as into North Italy. But the Netherlands' venture was a total failure, and the image of French troops fleeing from the Spanish in Dutch boats seriously blackened the French military reputation. It also frustrated Richelieu and Louis in equal measure, who had previously planned the venture as part of a wider strategy. 
With its failure and the resulting absence of French men to defend the French frontier against the Spanish Netherlands, France was soon become subject to a deadly attack from that theatre that almost forced her out of the war. With the Dutch now in the defensive and the French withdrawing, the Spanish and Piccolomini's forces now had freedom of movement in the region. Richelieu's years of planning for the opening salvos of the war against Spain had gone up in smoke. Now France would have to fight a defensive war that she had not planned, while her allies were under attack from the same enemy. In Magdeburg, before it could be taken and handed back to the Saxons, as per the terms of the Peace of Prague, Axel Oxenstierna found himself at the mercy of his own soldiers, as underpaid and frustrated mercs held him hostage until he coughed up the funds. This disastrous situation was merely another example of how desperate Sweden's situation had become, and played further into the hands of the panicked Swedish government back in Stockholm, who managed somehow to leak their minimum terms for a renewal of a peace deal with Poland. Oxenstierna, in his own crisis at Swordpoint, had to make impossible promises to the soldiery at Magdeburg, and eventually was able to scurry home just in time to prevent the child Queen Christina's pledging to a Danish prince courtesy of her mother. Having regained some control of the Regency government, Oxenstierna was greeted with further bad news, when he was informed of Bernard of Weimar's defection to the French side. Richelieu was well aware, you see, of France's chronic shortage of experienced commanders, and had promised the general 1 million livres if he would maintain a force of 18,000 men in Alsace to guard the Rhine frontier. Flipping Bernard, who had been essentially Gustavus's successor, was a bitter pill for Axox to swallow, but he had little choice. Sending angrily worded letters to France would do little good if Sweden needed her aid in the future. And Axox knew, as did Richelieu, that the move was not personal, merely an act to ensure France's security along her borders. Still, it left Sweden with even less forces to call upon, and legitimately placed all of its fortunes at Johann Banner's feet. Banner, alone in Pomerania with a force of less than 20,000, appeared like a lost cause to the Swedish council, who insisted that Oxenstierna made moves to achieve peace through Saxon mediators. These panicked processions, occurring through the late summer, were even more hastily organised owing to the fact that at this stage in 1635 the truce with Poland had yet to be renewed. But it was a humiliating experience for Oxenstierna to even engage with Saxon mediators. John George of Saxony, who's increasingly starting to annoy me, was sitting pretty with his Lusatias and Magdeburg secured, and made lofty demands which included the Europe-wide evacuation of Germany by Sweden and her adherence to the Peace of Prague. No territorial concessions were given, nor could Oxenstierna even rely on its success, since John George doubted Ferdinand's support for the ventures. Axox under no circumstances wished to endure the humiliation any longer than absolutely necessary and abandoned the negotiations once the Polish ones took precedent that September. Axox knew that Sweden had some serious problems with satisfying its soldiery, who had to be paid in full and removed as a danger to the state which they could very possibly hold hostage. Axox could see no way out of the mess other than with French money and aid, but in order to get that he would need to commit to French demands. However, as 1635's campaigning went down, it became clear that the now militarily in danger France required Swedish aid as much as Sweden required the French, while the Dutch remained critical to offset the Spanish plans at sea, 
and further hold the attentions of Spain in the Netherlands. Yet Axel was held back from committing to the French demands for the Mo because they required a Swedish promise to not make a separate peace for the duration of the struggle. This would be a problem if the situation for Sweden became even more untenable, and if this made her unable to wrest any territorial concessions in Germany because of it. Axox wanted Sweden to be in a stronger position before these negotiations with his French counterpart reconvened, but to do that, he had to have something that France wanted. While Axel mused this point, as the eventful year of 1635 ended, while his Dutch allies struggled against their eternal Spanish foe, and while the empire massed as one, not even he could have predicted the plunging of French fortunes for the following year, when 1636 almost represented the humiliation of the French state, and the triumph of the Habsburg hegemony in Europe. European theatres of war demonstrated their overlapping nature when, in September 1635, the truce with Poland that Oxenstierna so disliked enabled Sweden to pour 10,000 new men into Pomerania to reinforce Johann Banner, and give him cause to plan for a new campaign for the spring of 1636. Sweden was seriously in need of this force, but this coordination had much to do with Axox and Geoffrey Parker here reminds us why Oxenstierna could claim to lead Sweden, and why Gustavus had placed him at the head of the government in the first place. Quote, On the one hand, he concluded in March 1636 the Treaty of Wismar, which assured to him, subject to ratification, the French alliance. On the other hand, he took care not to ratify it, and on his return to Sweden in July that year he succeeded, by sheer force of personality, in stiffening the morale of his colleagues and rallying them to his delicately balancing, procrastinatory policy. They would not, they said, sacrifice Sweden's freedom of action for a squirt of money, and perhaps they realised that France needed Sweden as much as Sweden needed France. So they would keep the French option open, they would, if possible, get their hands upon French gold, and they would try again for a negotiated peace in Germany. Additionally, their desire was that Sweden must, if at all possible, keep alive a party in Germany committed to the defence of German liberties. But in July 1636, the military situation was such that in the last resort, even this may have to be sacrificed, as was remarked in the Council. Amnesty is honourable, compensation is useful, but contentment of the soldiery is essential. Still, if they could even realise a part of this programme, an alliance with France seemed decidedly second best. End quote. Banner was trying to justify Axel's confidence in him by engaging the Saxons in small-scale skirmishes, in the hope that an imperial army would be sent against him, whereupon he could hopefully achieve for Sweden what it so desperately needed, a convincing victory. As had been proven in the past, a military victory when one is in the jaws of defeat makes the world of difference. The fortunes of the Thirty Years' War thus far had followed this idea to a T. The banner was certainly in a difficulty. His was nothing in comparison to that experienced by Richelieu at this stage. The French First Minister was spending the opening weeks of 1636 attempting to coordinate the various theatres that the French war effort had stumbled into, and thereafter had to scramble to fill the huge gaps existing in France's defence. Signing the Treaty of Wismar with Sweden on the 20th of March 1636 was a commitment on behalf of both to fight against the Habsburgs wherever they could be found. 
In other words, it meant that France would soon be turning its focus against the Holy Roman Empire. As per the terms of the treaty, French forces under Bernard of Weimar were meant to move out from Alsace against imperial forces there, while Banner promised to bring the fight to the Rhine and Silesia if his campaigns out of Pomerania were successful. However, though the commitment was certainly there, Axe Ox, as we have seen, had yet to make it final. By holding out, the wily Swede had perhaps hoped to make his bargaining position stronger when he came face to face with Richelieu again. It was of course a gamble. Sweden could be in an even tougher position in a year's time. But as Bavaria, Saxony, Spain and the rest of the Habsburgs planned the downfall of France in numerous directions, the gamble didn't seem so foolish after all. French attacks against Spanish positions in the Valta line of North Italy, out from Alsace along the Rhine, and out into the Spanish Netherlands alongside the Dutch, were meant to sow seeds of panic among the Spanish administration. But out of all of these attacks, perhaps only the attacks against the Spanish base in North Italy, in the region known as the Valta line, succeeded. This French army, interestingly enough, was in fact commanded by the Duke of Rohan, a former Huguenot rebel who had been pressed into service by the desperate Richelieu in return for amnesty. Rohan had remained true to the French administration, even resisting tempting Habsburg bribes as he entered the morass of religious and political complications within the Valtaline. To recap, the Valtaline was a valley of extreme strategic importance that provided a route, the most convenient route, from North Italy's Lombardy region into South Germany. Nowadays, it is one of the easternmost parts of Switzerland, but for the time period we're looking at, it was ruled by the Grey Leagues, which I realise sounds more like something out of the Lord of the Rings than actual history, but bear with me. The Grey Leagues were a mutual defence pact of small cities and territories that during our time frame were independent of the Swiss cantons and Spanish North Italy alike, but of course had been marched through and occupied countless times, owing to their geographic importance if nothing else. I don't want to bombard you with more info within an already complicated episode, so just keep in your mind for the moment that France does reasonably well in the Valtaline until 1637, which is when we'll return to the theatre. 1636 did not bear witness to success elsewhere for the French planners though. The gaping hole left by the French blunders in the South Netherlands meant that the Cardinal Infant and Piccolomini's army were able to make a combined thrust into northern France, and on August 15, 1636, when three fortresses in a row surrendered to the invaders, the push continued to the town of Corby on the Somme, less than 50 miles from Paris. This shocking advance of the enemy and the panicked, amateurish French response had to be stopped in double-quick time, or the very fabric of the French state would come apart. Richelieu, acknowledging this, was near his wit's end when he then learned that Bernard of Weimar, that former Swedish general now protecting France's Rhine frontier, had suffered his own setbacks and was now in headlong retreat. Gallus, another of Wallenstein's former lieutenants, and the former Duke of Lorraine, Charles IV, led the spirited attack against Bernard's position and Bernard, recognising that he was outnumbered 2 to 1, thanks to heavy Bavarian contributions, withdrew to a stronger line. David Milland notes on the absolutely panicked French situation. Quote, By July, the Habsburg Allies had made good progress. 
Ferdinand overran the region between the Somme and the Ose, bypassed Amiens, and by mid-August had taken Corby, barely 50 miles north of Paris. The danger was dramatically brought home to the French by Piccolomini's cavalry, whose outriders swept through the suburbs of Paris itself. Richelieu, on the verge of a breakdown, managed to organise defences on the supply of reinforcements, while Louis XIII set a splendid example of royal leadership, calming the frightened, rallying the dispirited, and riding out at the head of his troops to meet the enemy halfway. End quote. The joint Spanish imperial advance into her territory reminded Richelieu of the original dangers in launching France at the Habsburgs in Europe. Since the Treaty of Wismar in March 1636, France was technically at war with the Holy Roman Empire. Whether Richelieu or Axe Ox took the time to verify it or not, it was committed to paper, and the Habsburgs were made well aware of its contents. While fighting on different fronts then, Richelieu was then made aware of rumoured Spanish invasion plans for the Languedoc region of France, where Huguenot rebellions had once been so prominent and where the area could surely be suspected of still being at least a little bit sore at the Catholic administration. If such an invasion had in fact taken place, France would surely have been forced into a humiliating surrender. Instead of a Spanish invasion though, French and Habsburg statesmen alike were made aware of a Swedish victory in Saxony. had finally grasped the victory from the jaws of defeat that his country had been holding out for. An imperial army was sent to end his attacks on the Saxons, which Banner had launched in preparation for a Swedish surge down the Elbe River and hopefully pushing George William of Brandenburg out of the war. On the 4th of October, Banner decisively defeated an imperial Saxon army led by John George of Saxony and in the process seriously helped Axox sleep at night. Geoffrey Parker examines the events. Quote, in the autumn of 1635, Banner fought a number of engagements against the Saxons, in preparation for a major thrust down the Elbe in the spring of 1636. As he had intended, this drew upon him an attack by the Imperialists, which Banner defeated decisively at Wittstock on the 4th of October 1636. The Swedes captured their enemy's supplies, equipment and over 100 field guns. This victory effectively eliminated Brandenburg from the war. George William cowered henceforth at Königsberg in East Prussia, one of the few places still under his control, while the Swedes extended their authority over the Elbe. End quote. This victory 95 kilometers from Berlin demonstrated that the Swedish force still possessed the bite required to make waves. The Wax Ox was said to be appalled by the serious losses suffered by the Swedes, especially by their Scottish and English brigades of volunteers. Additionally, Banner made pains to stress that the victory was due to the genius and experience of Alexander Leslie, the second in command of the battle, 
Indeed, Banner wrote to Queen Christina of Sweden that, My soldiers would have fallen to total disorder if Field Marshal Leslie, with the five brigades of foot which he had with him during the battle, had not assisted us just in time, and manfully attacked, and turned four brigades of the enemy's infantry away from us, so that we could finally gain our breath. Leslie, born in Scotland in 1582, was one of the Thirty Years' War's most interesting characters, and certainly a great example of the kind of individuals that the era produced. A foster child, Leslie made his name as a soldier of fortune, serving in the Dutch and then Swedish military, until he would return to Scotland to take part in the brutal civil wars that were ripping the British Isles apart. He would be commended heavily for his service, and die in 1661. His career is important because it included within it a close friend by the name of Leonard Torstensson, a figure who will soon acquire a legendary reputation as leader of Swedish forces from 1641 onwards. The effects of the Swedish victory at Wittstock enabled Banner to invade Saxony proper and threaten Leipzig, which he besieged at the end of 1636. This caused Gallus to withdraw from the French Rhine frontier so that he could answer the threat now posed by the unchallenged Swedish army, though he certainly had already made the decision to leave the Rhine once news of Wittstock filtered down to him, since leaving the Swedish army to rampage through central Germany would probably have reflected quite badly on him. By leaving the Alsace region, he provided Richelieu with great breathing space, but he also left his colleagues invading from the South Netherlands high and dry. The Cardinal Infant and Piccolomini became concerned that they could not endure within northern France if they did not have the distracting support of Gallus along the French Rhine frontier. So they collectively made the decision to evacuate from the campaign and retreat back into the obedient provinces. Additionally, Maximilian of Bavaria was now left virtually alone as Gallus had taken the majority of his forces to go and fight Banner and prevent his takeover of Saxony. France, by a combination of its own luck, its enemies' miscommunications, and its allies' successes, had survived 1636 by the skin of its teeth. Richelieu was determined that the following years would see better results. Unfortunately for Richelieu, though, the following year began with Banner's retreat in the face of Gallus' superior force at Leipzig in January 1637. Johann Banner, retreating through the ruined lands of North Germany that had already experienced so much suffering and appealing once more to Axel Oxenstierna for reinforcements or financial aid, was convinced that the only chance Sweden possessed to regain the offensive was by significant injections of money, not haphazard efforts or coincidental reinforcements that came as the result of a closed front in the Baltic. Banner promised Axox results if Axel could fully commit to the venture. Banner himself believed he could defeat the imperialists. He felt he simply lacked the support to do so. Axox agreed, and the events of early 1637 also convinced him that the time had come to cut Sweden's losses and ratify the agreement with France. But the Dutch were also making waves of their own. Having recaptured Schenkenchans in April 1636, which in itself was a huge blow to Spain and the Infants' administration, was informed of a planned attack on Dunkirk to rid the region of the troublesome Dunkirk raiders that had long pillaged Dutch trade at sea and caused much misfortune to Dutch shipping. 
David Milland enlightens us as to the surprising turn of events, which provided perhaps the best portion of good news for the Franco-Swedish-Dutch trio during 1637. Quote, In 1637, the Estates General ordered a seaborne attack on Dunkirk. Frederick Henry disliked the plan, but, as Dutch shipping suffered so heavily from the Dunkirk raiders, he had no option but to assemble an army for embarkation there. When several weeks of contrary winds prevented the fleet from putting out to the channel, however, he transferred the army inland and took everyone by surprise by marching on Breda. Once again, he demonstrated his genius as a military engineer. His operation, brilliantly planned, defended and executed, like those of Sahurta Genbosch and Maastricht in the past, was the talk of Europe, and in October 1637, the city of Breda surrendered. End quote. Richelieu, for his part, spent 1637 recovering his forces from the previous panicked year and planning for the following year of campaigning, while his reps contacted Axox and informed him that they are ready to ratify the 1636 Treaty of Wismar. After the events of the past few months, it seemed as though Axox's gamble had paid off. The banner was now stuck in a precarious position, as he had spent the latter half of 1637 retreating even further into Saxony, which eventually brought him to a beleaguered stretch of Pomerania. And though Sweden would finally have to commit to entering the war for as long as France required, it was finally clear to everyone that France needed Sweden as much as Sweden needed France. Negotiations were set for March 1638, and this time Richelieu was adamant that he would commit everything that France had against the Habsburgs. The time had come to grant Banner the financial and resulting military shot in the arm he so desired. The results of this decision by Richelieu, and the results of this Treaty of Hamburg in 1638, will be examined in all their incredible glory next time. Ferdinand of Hungary, son of Ferdinand II, was finally confirmed as Ferdinand III in September 1636. Voting took place in Regensburg, Bavaria, in September 1636, and Ferdinand was confident enough that his son's succession would be guaranteed. As usual, though, the electors recognised that they held the power in this case, since Ferdinand III's legitimacy depended upon their say-so. Maximilian of Bavaria, John George of Saxony, and George William of Brandenburg, as well as the other electors of Mainz and Cologne, with the elector of Trier languishing in a Habsburg prison after inviting the French in, all had their own cards to play in Regensburg. Though Ferdinand's son was the only realistic candidate, the absence of diets meant that the elector's word would be final, and so they demanded further concessions from Ferdinand II. First and foremost, the question of amnesty was brought up again. This time it was reluctantly extended by Ferdinand to include those princes who had sided with the Swedes before the Swedish successes of the early 1630s had flipped many other German rulers. So long as they submitted to him, Ferdinand explained, he would pardon their previous actions, and, in addition, Ferdinand agreed to hold a conference to bring about an international peace agreement. However, though the electors demanded such a peace, their own insatiable greed blocked it. As Geoffrey Parker notes, quote, Maximilian of Bavaria required that France should evacuate Lorraine and restore his dispossessed cousin, Duke Charles IV. George William of Brandenburg, still obsessed by the Pomeranian question, insisted that Sweden should not retain one foot of territory on imperial soil, still less any town or fortress. In the end, 
the electors had to be content with imperial promises that negotiations would soon begin. But on the 15th of February 1637, Ferdinand II died. No serious talks with foreign powers took place. End quote. Ferdinand II's death in early 1637 represented the end of an era for the Habsburgs. At one point it seemed likely that Ferdinand's dream of counter-reformation Catholicism combined with aggressive militaristic expansion would reinforce and ensure the future hegemony of the Habsburg family in its Austrian heartland and perhaps beyond. Sweden had snatched that chance from Ferdy's grasp. Whatever the Habsburg comeback looked like by early 1637, and whatever the significance of the Peace of Prague was for the HRE as a whole, by the time of Ferdinand's death, it was simply not possible to continue sustaining such an expensive, ruinous war. It amazes me really that during my search of Google Books and the college and local libraries, I could not find one adequate biography of Ferdinand II. How is it possible that this man, in charge of the HRE for almost 20 years since his succession as emperor in 1619, could not have had more said about him in history? It is certainly a perfect place for one to fill a niche for those potential historical biographers out there. I would be very interested myself to see what such a biographer would conclude. We at When Diplomacy Fails have seen Ferdinand II at his worst. We've seen him at his most intolerant, his most unflinching, and at his most tactless. This critical lack of tact, his apparent inability to compromise, really provided a key source of ignition for the Thirty Years' War. His additional inability to look ahead at what he was doing to the Holy Roman Empire and ponder the consequences abroad led to some seriously unnecessary interventions by foreign powers, which merely prolonged what had already been an exhaustive war. At his highest point, Ferdinand was only as good as his strongest general, Albrecht of Wallenstein, and we saw last time how Ferdy abandoned Wallenstein and listened to the smear campaign set against him, to the extent that the Bohemian Generalissimo's assassination was signed by Ferdy himself. Way back in the defenestration, we saw how Ferdinand's inability to deal with the more radical elements of the empire, combined with his own tendency to listen to the more radical elements of his own court, produced a toxic mix, whereby the intervening force of Frederick V of the Palatinate was brought about. That's not to say I blame the Thirty Years' War, or its initial events entirely on Ferdinand, of course. Such a judgement would not take into account the exhaustive amount of details we've covered in this special alone. His failure to negotiate with the Calvinist elements of the Bohemian Rebellion, his chastising of the Palatine court, and his frightening successes thereafter, provoked first Danish, then Swedish, and then French intervention. Of course, these aforementioned states were not robots in the Thirty Years' War, they didn't have to intervene, but I get the feeling that had Ferdinand's response to the events of the Thirty Years' War been milder, had he, for example, provided an amnesty to Frederick V of the Palatinate and struck a deal where the issue of Bohemia could be appropriately settled, the Thirty Years' War would not have escalated as it did. Ferdinand's refusal to compromise, and his insistence on acquiring victory so as to negotiate from a position of strength, always struck me more as sounding like someone who ruled a kingdom rather than an elected emperor of a decentralised patchwork of various states. 
Ferdinand's intentions for the HRE itself are still debated today, and the extent to which he genuinely believed it was possible to create a centralised Habsburg kingdom in place of the Holy Roman Empire remains a hot topic for early modern historians. Perhaps the remains of what he handed down to his son prove that, no matter one's height of power, transforming a historically decentralised polity like the Holy Roman Empire into a kingdom could not be done, and attempting to monopolise either power or religion or military force within it was equally impossible. The HRE had definitely suffered during Ferdinand's reign. Few places remained within it by the time of his death that hadn't experienced horrible sieges, the wasting of the countryside, the execution at random of citizens, the destruction of livelihoods, the burning of crops, the recklessness of soldiery, the cruelty of the victor. Whatever Ferdinand's goals when he began his oppression of Bohemia and his removal of the Palatine family from imperial affairs, the end result cannot be considered worth it. If one considers the Thirty Years' War as the small-scale, localised conflict in a portion of Germany that simply wasn't allowed to end, and which gained more venom as further measures by the Habsburgs warranted paranoid moves by the internal opposition, which was responded to in kind, and which then in turn drew the ire and intervention of foreign powers, then perhaps we cannot blame Ferdinand outright for the events of the Thirty Years' War. Perhaps it really was a case of, events, dear boy, events. And yet, I feel that lets Ferdinand off the hook too easily. It was only when he lost everything and saw clearly the overturning of his authority by the Swedes that he even considered compromise, and even then, he had to be persuaded heavily by the Spanish and his own son to see the bigger picture and sacrifice his brainchild, the Edict of Restitution. When the victories flowed in, Ferdinand was confident to up the stakes and demand an even higher price for peace, but when the winning ceased, and when the lands of those he claimed lordship over smouldered in ruins, he remained to his death convinced of his mission to maintain the struggle for the sake of a better deal for the Habsburg family. It was clear the lessons he failed to learn were learned in abundance by his son, because almost as soon as his father had died, Ferdinand III was making plans for a European white peace and, unlike his father, he was willing to fully sacrifice the physical power of the Habsburg dynasty and the Edict of Restitution in order to achieve it. Is there really a way to give Ferdinand II a proper send-off? I'll admit, though I have little love for the man, I have been covering his story for almost the past nine months, so I'm going to miss him just a little. I've been surrounded by every bit of text written in the English language that has anything to say about him. I've read far more than is healthy about his eating habits, his love for dogs, his entourage of Jesuit confessors. In the past 12 episodes on the Thirty Years' War, including this one, Ferdinand II is featured, at least in some way, but most of the time heavily, in nine of them. I wrote an essay on Ferdinand for college with the question, is Ferdinand II a victim of his own success? And within it, I judged that he was, on the basis that, at the high point of his leadership, he continued to make rulings and pass statutes that were guaranteed to inflame passions within his empire and without. I had tried to maintain an even-handed examination of his life, but as you may have gathered from the last episode when I looked at the death of Wallenstein, such objectivity, much like Ferdinand's 1618 representatives in Prague, went out the window. It still bothers me that people who know nothing of the Thirty Years' War are somehow more likely to know false stories about Wallenstein's treachery 
than Ferdinand's genuine character flaws. And perhaps that frustration manifested itself a little heavily in the last episode, 25.7. But still, my verdict on that whole situation still stands. In conclusion then, I find it very difficult to sympathise with a man like Ferdinand who really could have had so much more had he simply listened to those moderates in court and dealt with the Empire's issues with even a modicum of tolerance, consideration and foresight, rather than blundering through the events of the Thirty Years' War with all the understanding and diplomatic tact of another, more infamous Kaiser of the 20th century. Perhaps the Edict of Restitution was his end goal, or perhaps the crafting of said Edict was not all Ferdi's idea. But Ferdinand must have known, deep down, that foreign observers would not allow their fellow brethren to endure the kind of ideals professed by that document without aid. Surrounding himself with the Jesuit influence from beginning to end, Ferdinand's imperium is unrecognisable when compared to his predecessors. All it really did was demonstrate why attempting to roll back the clock by imposing a single belief or religious system upon such a region, like the Holy Roman Empire, was a very bad idea. He could claim to rule this Holy Roman Empire like no other emperor had before him, since the power he gained from the Peace of Prague gained him control over the virtual entirety of the Holy Roman Empire's state resources, which he could then turn against his enemies. But this was a position barely endured to the end of the 1630s, and at what cost was it achieved anyway? The Thirty Years' War was a conflict not entirely of his own making, but Ferdinand must share a great portion of the blame for its continuation, and for his own inability to stop it once it ceased to resemble a localised rebellion and took the shape of something far worse. The end of the Thirty Years' War was made official eleven years later at Westphalia, and Ferdinand III's success in inaugurating its negotiations remind one just how insufficient his father's sole attempt at an empire-wide peace was in 1635. Perhaps the greatest legacy of Ferdinand II was that he left in charge a son capable enough to understand that the ruinous conflict his father had helped precipitate in 1618 had to end. Thirty years after it began, his son would pick up the pieces, and finally relieve Europe, or at least the Holy Roman Empire, of its immense burden once and for all. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. Next time, we'll look at the close of the 1630s, how the leadership change at the top of the Habsburg family affects the conduct of the Thirty Years' War, and how the Spanish partner finally sees its stock begin to definitely fall after so many years on top. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War, episode 25.75, 1635-1638. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.